So our scriptures today come from the Old and New Testaments, and I was, yeah, well, the Old, Old and New Testaments, and the first comes to us from Psalm 122. Psalm 122 is one of uh, several Psalms of Ascent, they're called, in the midst of the uh, book of Psalms. And this is a collection of Psalms that the pilgrims who made their way to Jerusalem for all the high and holy feasts would sing and chant as they made their way into Jerusalem. And that helps us to sort of understand what this prayer is about as we imagine those pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem uh, chanting this particular psalm, Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together. To it the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. For there the thrones of judgment were set up, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my relatives and friends, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Then our second lesson is from Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. This wonderful vision uh, presented to uh, John of the vision of the heavenly community gathering together. After this, I looked and there was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands. They cried out in a loud voice saying, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God singing amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And then one of the elders addressed me saying, who are these robed in white and where have they come from? And I said to him, sir, you are the one that knows. And then he said to me, these are they who have come out of the great ordeal. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And for this reason, they are before the throne of God and worship him day and night within his temple. And the one who is seated on the throne will shelter them and they will hunger no more and thirst no more. The sun will not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. By your grace and through your mercy, we pray, O Lord, that you will allow these words to come to point to the word just read and to the word made flesh in Jesus the Christ, where we pray this in his name, amen. The church in which I grew up on the east side of Detroit, Lakeshore Presbyterian Church, had and still does have embedded into the center of the chancel wall a stained glass window, just like we have embedded into the center of our chancel a stained glass window. It was the only stained glass window in the sanctuary and it depicted Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's kneeling beside a large stone and with clasped hands he is praying. Hovering above him is the cup of destiny from which he is seeking release. Take this cup from me. 
And on the far left are the sleeping disciples, and on the far right of the window are the approaching Sanhedrin guard led by Judas who is coming to arrest him. This is the window upon which I gazed for an hour every week for 10 years of my childhood. It is an image emblazoned in my mind and has consciously, and I suspect subconsciously, informed my spiritual journey. There has not been a Monday Thursday in which I have not brought back that particular image to mind. Jesus praying, a cup hovering, the disciples sleeping, the betrayer betraying. Religious art has its way of making a powerful impression. Now, as I said, here at Church of the Palms, we have our own chancel window, one of many stained glass windows in our sanctuary that depict the biblical story, the eight days of creation above us, the prophecy, nativity, and baptism windows to the south, the Lord's Supper, the resurrection, and the ascension windows to the north, and the commissioning windows in the narthex. The center window at Church of the Palms, of course, is the Palms window that depicts the great... De depicts the great procession of pilgrims to Jerusalem. It's on the cover of your bulletin if you want a closer look at it. The crowd is waving their palms as they enter the holy city to celebrate Passover. We can also imagine as we glimpse at this at this window over the centuries, every procession of pilgrims to Jerusalem for the great feast, singing their psalms of ascent, just like we did Psalm 122. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go up to the house of the Lord. We are a pilgrim faith. We are on our way somewhere. So we can also imagine the great procession of humanity ascending the mountain of God and making their way to the new Jerusalem, the city not made with hands in the heavens. We are pilgrims, aren't we, uh, to the heavenly city. The Apostle Paul says our commonwealth is in heaven. We are on our way somewhere, whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, we are pilgrims. We're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion, as the old hymn goes. And it is in beautiful, beautiful Zion that John, the writer of Revelation, imagines the whole mass of humanity, the multitude that no one can number from every nation, every tribe, every language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white with palm branches in their hands, worshiping God day and night in the new temple. This is what John imagines. This is the painting he paints. This is the stained glass window he fashions. This dream of daily and nightly worshiping before the Father and the Son, the Lamb that was slain, worshiping almost as if we can't help it. I'll say that again. Worshiping almost as if we can't help it. And in heaven, we can't help it because we've been filled with love. We are in love with God. We are in love with each other. We are being loved by the author of love, and we are loving God back. We are becoming a new creation. We are in sync with the rhythms of the universe. This expression of love comes as natural to us as breathing. This is what we are pilgrims to. This is where we're going. And so the very pilgrimage then becomes a preparation. We are making our way, and in 
And in making our way, when we are in our right mind and heart, we are seeking to become participants in this community of love and praise and worship. This is what this is what we are intended to become, whether we know it or not, or whether we even like it or not. So we are in this procession. We are climbing the Mount Zion. We are growing our lungs. We are growing our souls. We're growing our hearts to participate in that great heavenly throng of worship, praise, and love. Says Richard Rohr, life is all about practicing for heaven. I used to be a runner. I know that's hard to believe. I ran between 30 to 35 miles a week for a long, long time, and then I decided to train for a marathon, which meant I put a whole bunch more miles in per week, and I always heard about this thing called a runner's high, but I had never experienced it. I ran long enough without experiencing it that I began to doubt it, kind of like the green flash at sunset on the beach. Until one day, in one of my long, long, long runs, it came. The endorphins released, and I felt like I was on another planet. I felt like I was on drugs. Not that I know what it likes to be, but it likes to be. <clears throat> All that preparation had culminated in this incredible euphoria, the elation was worth every mile I had run. We are marching to Zion, and the culmination is euphoria. It is elation. The closer we get, the more we grow into becoming a vessel of adoring love. Life is all about practicing for heaven. It's why when you see, it's what you see when you read the Bible. What you see when you read the Bible is you see these people who are growing into something. You see them taking on greater proportion. In America, when we think about people taking on greater proportion, we think they're gaining weight, you know, stretching the waistline. But in the great story of God, the whole journey is about growing from the inside, expanding on the inside. In the great story of God, the journey is like the Grinch, from a heart two sizes too small to a heart three times as big. This is what the journey is about. And you see it in the post-resurrection community where after the disciples encounter the risen Christ, after they see the path that is now taking them to that great heavenly throng, they start growing. They get bigger from the inside. Peter turns from the cowering coward who denied any knowledge of Jesus to becoming the growing giant who preaches at Pentecost and who, who, uh, who begins to minister to the Gentiles. Mary Magdalene goes from weeping at the cross to preaching the first Christian sermon, I have seen the Lord. Saul, the enemy of the church, grows his heart ten times to become the apostle to the Greek world. John goes from absentee at the cross to a healer of lame men and martyr for the faith. In the Bible, pilgrimage means expansion, hearts getting bigger, souls taking on greater proportion. It makes me think of my friend John. John was one of the saints of the church that I first served in Philadelphia. He was the president of a local company, father, husband, local community leader. Didn't have much to say, but when he said it, everybody leaned in. He was kind, he was generous, he was humble, and he had a great sense of humor. He was 40 years my senior, and as a young man in my 20s, 
wet behind the ears from seminary, I said to myself, I want to be like him someday. And the reason I wanted to be like him someday is that he seemed the closest I'd ever seen to Jesus. He, he, was, he was big, but from the inside. Love oozed from his pores. He was generous with time, his counsel, his money, his love. And every day, he seemed to get bigger. His art grew another size. He was, and finally, when that day came when he was in hospice, he called me to his bedside. Why? Because he wanted to bless me. He wanted to pray for me because he knew I had my whole life ahead of me. And he wanted me to grow. And he wanted my soul to expand. And he wanted my heart to grow three sizes bigger. And when I got thinking about John, I got thinking about compounding interest. I know, this is a big leap, but here it goes. I got thinking about my middle school math class, and the teacher got talking to us about compounding interest. Now, there's not anything I remember from that middle school math class except for this, but Mr. Victor started talking about compounding interest. He said, you know, if you save $5 a day for 50 years, you'll become a millionaire. It was the 70s, interest rates were high. <clears throat> and when we heard millionaire, we all sat up. We were eager to learn what Mr. Vickers had to say, and that's when he talked to us about compounding interest. Keep putting in a little bit of money, and over time, the interest compounds. It grows exponentially. Not much at the beginning, but a lot later on. $5 a day, $5 a day, $5 a day, and the pot grows, and the bank account runs over, and you become a millionaire. You get bigger. You know, life is, is it not, a compelling a compounding journey. When we're interested in what we are interested in early and what we stay interested in pays off in the end. Learn piano early and keep practicing, it pays off in the end. Spend time early with your family, keep at it, it pays off in the end, usually. Invest in friendships early and keep at it, those friendships become deep and beautiful in the end. Learn a language early and keep at it, it pays off in the end. So I thought about John, and I imagine that John wasn't always that way. He wasn't always as wise, he wasn't always as humble, he wasn't always as generous. He wasn't always as compassionate. He wasn't always as loving. But I know that from the very beginning, he started investing his life in the way of Jesus. He read his Bible every day. He attended church every Sunday. He prayed every morning. He visited the sick every month. He showed up at Bible study every week. He worked at the soup kitchen every quarter. He ate dinner with his family every night. $5, $5, $5. And his interest his interest in the life of the Spirit, his interest in the life of Jesus, his interest in the love of the Father, his interest compounded. It took over, it expanded, and he couldn't help himself but to be the things he was. In a contrasting way, it makes me think of the story of a young Florida graduate interviewing for his first job up the road in Tampa, and as the interview came to a close, the human resources person conducting the interview asked the young graduate, now what starting salary were you looking for? And the young graduate replied, oh, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred dollars to $400,000 a year, depending on the benefits package. 
The interviewer said, well, what would you say to a package of six weeks vacation, 14 paid holidays, full medical and dental, company matching retirement fund, and a company car leased every two years, whatever you want, Cadillac, Mercedes, BMW, Volvo, you name it. The young graduate stood up in his chair and said, wow, are you kidding? And the interviewer replied, yeah, but you started it. <laughs> we want it now, don't we, right? We want it now. We want the pot of gold now. We want the runner's high now. We want the euphoric worship now. But life's a journey. We are marching to Zion. We are compounding our interest. Which makes me think of the story that Mark and Luke tell about when Jesus was in the temple and he noticed the big fats giving their money, the big fat cats giving their money, dropping in their big bags of coins, and then somewhere from the shadows of the temple comes the poor widow who's just got two pennies to rub together, and she drops them both in the offering plate. Last two pennies she's got, she drops them in the offering plate. How could she do that? And then you get started to think that that's what she did a long time ago. Two pennies, two pennies, two pennies. Her interest in God growing and growing and growing so that when they became her last two pennies, she couldn't help herself. Her life had grown that big. Life is all about practicing for heaven. Gordon Cosby, the founding pastor of the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., told about a moment in his early ministry when he was pastoring in Lynchburg, Virginia, back in the 50s. And one of the deacons came to him and reported to him that in the congregation there was a widow who had six kids and that the record showed that she was giving to the congregation $4 a week, which was a tithe of her income. She is unable, of course, to do this, said the deacon to Reverend Cosby. We need you to go over to her house and tell her that she needs to feel no obligation to give and she is relieved of the responsibility. Cosby writes, I am not wise now, I was less wise then. I went and told her of the concern of the deacons. I told her as graciously and as supportively as possible that she was relieved of the responsibility of giving. As I talked with her, tears came to her eyes. I want to tell you, she said, that you are taking away from me my greatest joy. The pastor just didn't know how big she was. Life is all about practicing for heaven. I suppose it's why Jesus said that the mustard bush, the biggest of all the bushes, begins with the mustard seed, the smallest of all seeds. So that when he throws himself down in the garden of Gethsemane, sleeping disciples on the left and betraying disciples on the right in the cup of destiny above, he's doing what he's done every day. Five dollars, five dollars, five dollars, marching to Zion. Mustard seed, mustard seed, mustard seed, trusting that the glory will come. There's something about spirituality that makes us want it now. We want it all now. We want to feel close to God now. We want God to bless us now. We want our hearts three sizes bigger now. We want to snap our fingers and get the joy now journey to Zion, and the words of Frederick Nietzsche, later coined by Eugene Peterson, the journey to Zion is a long obedience in the same direction. Five dollars, five dollars, five dollars, four dollars, four dollars, 
two pennies, two pennies. And the interest compounds. And the heart grows. And the soul expands. And someday, our lungs can't help but shout and praise and worship and sing blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. For we are marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion, the beautiful city of God.